You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 23 of Tax Talks. This is Heidel Robson. Mortgage brokering is a 344 billion industry responsible for over 50% of mortgages in Australia. And it is sitting right in front of us in the supply chain, meaning mortgage brokers get involved at the very start of an investment cycle, while we usually come in later. And yet, we tend to never meet or talk. So I was keen to better understand what actually happens before we come in and how mortgage brokers assist our clients. I'm talking to Jonathan Preston of Home Loan Experts in Sydney and started by asking Jonathan how he got into mortgage brokering. Here's his answer. The first part of my career I spent in more of a speculative capacity, if you will. I guess, you know, uh, part of that, I guess, comes down to age, wanting to be successful, you know, when you're young. And uh, I saw using a lot of leverage as an opportunity to do that. Um, I guess as I sort of matured slightly in my career and with my investments, I found generally that uh, when I was trying to speculate using a lot of leverage in CFDs and uh, other leverage instruments, um, the results were very volatile and sometimes ambition works against you when it comes to leverage in terms of making you over leverage there. So I slowly transitioned out of using significant leverage and uh, basically began uh, trading more in physical equities. Uh, basically from that, I did make some significant gains in a number of stocks. And then from there, I started to become more interested in uh, getting into the property side of things as I'd acquired enough money um, that I effectively could start to purchase properties. Um, I guess as this was happening, I sort of made the shift in terms of my career more away from the financial markets to uh, the financial planning side of things. And at this point, financial planning had sort of changed a bit in terms of it had gone from sort of a very commission-based model where people were sort of uh, selling funds and that kind of thing um, into more of sort of an insurance-based side of things, a more fee-for-service kind of model. Um, and as this was sort of happening, you know, I was uh, enjoying people uh, helping people to basically sort of steer their financial destiny, if you will, in the right direction, helping them to avoid sort of bad financial decisions and helping them to sort of be, uh, you know, invested in the right way for their risk profile. Uh, as this continued, I acquired more and more property. Um, and as I did that, I got more and more people basically coming to me with sort of property related questions, wanting to talk about, you know, how they could potentially, you know, build a portfolio and a number of things like this. So over time, Basically, uh, I was becoming more and more sought after in terms of talking about property. Uh, and then I saw a good opportunity here to make the move into mortgage broking, which I felt would allow me to talk 100% of the time uh, on the topic of property. Uh, and that's sort of, uh, I guess, where I find myself today. How does one become a mortgage broker? Do you have to sit an exam? Do you have to register? Do you have to be licensed? Mm -hmm. So mortgage broking, uh, to qualify, basically, you basically need to just either have the certificate for or, um, or the diploma, depending on who you actually, which industry group that you go under. So with mortgage broking, uh, at this moment, there's not a huge level of qualification that is required to get into the industry. However, um, 
the industry from the outside it appears that everything's the same and all the banks look pretty similar and the products look pretty similar. But when you actually get inside the industry, you realize how different credit policy is between banks and how you need to specifically cater, uh, you know, fit someone's personal circumstance with the right lender to make sure it gets approved because everyone's circumstances are different. And so there is actually a substantial learning curve and a big difference in between lenders. And so um, getting the formal qualification to become licensed as a mortgage broker is one thing, but to become a good mortgage broker that can do very difficult situations and making sure that you can get hard deals across the line uh, is a completely different story altogether. Mm. And what's your role at Home Loan Experts? Yep. So I'm a senior mortgage broker at Home Loan Experts. Uh, basically, you know, I will manage the full client relationship. Um, I will assess the transaction to, you know, check serviceability, see what lenders you will fit with, uh, and, and basically recommend a lender for you. And then I will have a team that work with me to facilitate it all the way to settlement. Uh, but basically, I will be responsible for the full client relationship and actually uh, finding the right lender for you and getting the loan access actually approved and then overseeing it all the way to the uh, you know person getting the keys. What's the relationship between mortgage brokers and financial advisors? Do they kind of work separate from each other and never talk or do mortgage brokers tend to work closely with financial advisors or is it different from client to client? It differs from client to client. We are seeing more and more financial advisors get into the mortgage broking space so there tends to be so there's um, more they're more a competitor than than a group that mortgage brokers liaise with closely currently that's that's what we're seeing more and more of i don't know if that was so much the the case going back a number of years but in today's market we are seeing a lot of um, financial advisors get into the mortgage broking space as well. Uh, the challenge around that though is unless you are seeing a significant volume of mortgages and a variety of circumstances, uh, you can be a good financial advisor and understand someone's risk profile and their circumstances and everything like that. But, uh, unless you actually have enough sort of, um, sort of experience on the ground, if you will, in terms of seeing client scenarios and getting hundreds of loans approved, uh, there will be a number of situations that you're not going to be sort of equipped to, to deliver on, if you will. Mm. And how is the, the mortgage broker market just works on commission, doesn't it? Correct. If in most cases, now for a very complex transaction uh, or for a commercial transaction or for a small transaction, then uh, brokers will sometimes charge like a brokerage fee, which is effectively like a fee for service kind of component. Uh, most sort of standard loans do pay a similar rate of commission, but some specialist lenders pay more or less and some transactions take significantly longer to get approved. Uh, and when it comes to commercial, it all tends to be case by case. So the vast majority of it is commission based, uh, but in a number of cases and probably increasingly so, uh, we are, you know, seeing that a sort of a fee for service, um, uh, brokerage component is being implemented. And the commission is paid by the banks. Paid by the banks, then it goes to an aggregator, then to the company that you know you're working for, kind of thing. I see. And how do the banks liaise with mortgage brokers? Is it quite a clinical relationship, or do do you tend to work quite closely with uh, with certain banks, where you kind of have a contact that you know well um, to discuss difficult cases? 
So the banks will all have a business development, um, you know, representative and they'll typically be responsible for maybe 100 to 500 brokers, something like that. Uh, and that will be normally your uh, point of reference when you have a scenario that you want to discuss with the bank or you have something that would be an exception, but you think maybe they will, they will accept. Um, a number of banks kind of, uh, you know, you will build a relationship with them over time. Uh, and also some different, you know, some BDMs have more pulling power than others, if you will. What's a BDM? So a business development manager. Oh, okay. um, so some BDMs will have a very strong relationship with the credit team and they'll support an application and say that, you know, in their opinion, it's likely to work and they think it's going to be, you know, fine and they'll be able to push it through uh, versus some banks, you know, the BDM will answer your questions. Uh, but uh, when it gets to credit, if credit don't want it, credit don't want it. Um, so it, it is actually quite different, um, you know, lender by lender, I would say. I see. So in some... At some lenders, the BDM has quite quite a big say, mm -hmm. and in others, it's more the credit department that decides. Yep, and typically, the smaller the lenders, the uh, the more the BDM is um, you know is able to help. The larger lenders, you know, tend to be uh, more regimented, if you will, and and less flexible when it comes to that kind of thing. Now, policy is a whole different story there, and the big banks may have more flexible policies, but when it comes to the BDM having pulling power. Uh, that tends to be something more specific to uh, smaller or specialized lenders. And how is the mortgage brokering market fragmented? Is it dominated by many thousands, millions of small players or are there some big players in the market? So there's definitely a number of big players in the market. You know, a lot of people will have seen, you know, Aussies ads and this kind of thing. Uh, the thing is with that, though, is that these large companies tend to have a number of um, sort of contractor-based brokers, and typically the large firms have very little sort of training. You know, you might go to a couple of week kind of course or something very basic where they'll teach you sort of the real basics, and then they sort of say off you go, and they'll give you a couple of leads a month, and then they'll say you know convert that, and otherwise you know go to your community events and go get your own clients. Then you have sort of your large independence, if you will, which is more similar to our sort of company where you might have, you know, 15 to 50 brokers or maybe even five to 50 brokers. And they'll tend to be more of like a close knit unit. Um, and in this kind of case, the company is large enough that you're getting the benefits of scale and you're getting the benefit of being on the radar of the banks in terms of getting their help. Uh, and you also have uh, you know, the shared experience, um, across the group. Uh, but, you know, you still, like, you have a lot of benefits that you get from that that you don't get as, like, an independent agent of Aussie where you might just sit in your back room and, you know, when you get a client, you somehow make it work. Uh, but when you have a, a big company like this working together, you know, we can walk around the room and half of the staff here are ex-banks and we can, you know, talk over a transaction and it really helps you to sort of, uh, you know, make sure that it can get positioned in the right way. So you've kind of got the three levels on the market You've got the really, really big players with lots of people underneath them that aren't so connected. Then you've got your sort of larger independents. And then you've got sort of heaps of little one-man bands, if you will, or maybe mm -hmm. one or two brokers. Uh, and, you know, in some cases, they can be excellent. There are some some excellent, you know, small brokers. But in a lot of cases, they're not seeing a lot of transactions. They're not getting a lot of love from the banks by the nature of the fact that they're quite small, independent players. And so in some ways, they are um, significantly disadvantaged.
Do clients usually liaise with you before they buy a property or do you usually come in after they buy a property? Most of the time they do come in first because we do have the culture of people knowing about the concept of uh, getting a pre-approval. But in a lot of cases, uh, some people are, I guess, overconfident and will go and buy a property maybe at auction or put money down um, and then they'll find out that their other approval didn't hold weight. So that's something we are seeing more and more of in today's market as financing is becoming more challenging. Uh, another thing is off the plan properties where people have been sold a property and the seller has told them like, you're not going to have any problems with finance. Don't worry. Easy as just sign, just sign. And that might've been a year or two ago. And these agents were typically paid, you know, 50% upfront, 50% on settlement. So they just really wanted to get the transaction across the line. And then we get someone who's three weeks out from settlement and they've applied somewhere that they thought was going to give them approval, no problem. And all of a sudden it's a big issue. No, we're not able to do that. Um, they might have then gone to their local, you know, Aussie broker or called the, the their big bank that they dealt with their whole life, and they've gone, oh no, we can't help you because of this, uh, and then they'll t- tend to find us online, um, uh, and then basically say, here, hey, here's where I'm up to. I really need your help. Here's my issues. Can you find me a lender that will work around that? And and we do a lot of that. What do the banks look for when? It comes to approval. Is there a difference between residential and commercial or inside or outside in SMSF? Yep. So pretty big difference. I guess we'll talk about residential versus commercial first. Residential is um, much more regulated. And so that means that you typically have to meet like a minimum assessment rate. Uh, what the assessment rate is, is like a, an assessed interest rate above the actual interest rate. And that's set in place by APRA so that they make sure that everyone can afford their mortgage repayments, even if rates go much higher. So you have to show that you have sufficient income to actually cover that mortgage, even if rates go much higher. And so what that means is that even if you're buying an investment property, if it's a standard purchase through a standard, you know, residential, like it's in your personal name, that is a regulated loan. And even if the rent looks to be covering the mortgage repayments, it still has to meet that assessment rate. So income is very important. And so you'll need to verify your income, not only through the rent of the property, uh, but also, uh, you know, through your job or through your self-employment, or perhaps there's like a low doc loan, which might be a BAS statement, accountant declaration, um, something of this sort. Uh, the other part to that, obviously, is the deposit and the character of the person who's actually borrowing. So uh, effectively, your credit file, do you have defaults? You know, have you had a, a judgment or a, a bankruptcy in the past? All that kind of thing. So residential really comes down to income, deposit, and who you are as a borrower. Now, commercial is much more case by case. Um, if a transaction makes more sense to a lender, they're willing to look more outside the box. So typically the deposit requirement is larger. Um, the rental income from the commercial property is perhaps more important and also the lease terms are more important as well. Um, and also the type of security is very important as well. Now, obviously that's important in residential too, but I'm making the assumption here that in residential, we're talking about a standard house or strata unit or you know, standard kind of residential property. In commercial, you've got a very wide range of properties. So we might be talking your average shop that's on the street. Um, you know, we might be talking about like a warehouse. We might be talking about a medical center. We might be talking about a childcare center. Uh, and so some of these uh, you know, securities are very specialist. You know, a childcare center can only be leased to effectively a childcare operator. And so some lenders are, are very fine with that and some lenders don't want that or they've already got too much of it on the books. So 
when it comes to residential versus commercial, uh, those are the two sort of main things there. But commercial, you don't necessarily, uh, you know, have to look so much at the income side of it. Obviously, you need to show enough income to service the loan, but it's not regulated in the same way there. Uh, the other part to this is if we're talking commercial, then you can also look at, you know, development loans and development loans are sort of a, a whole different kettle of fish altogether. Uh, with development loans, it's rare that you're going to build, say, 100 apartments and then have the serviceability to be able to service the debt on all of them at the end. So that's where you would use pre-sales, for example, to show that you're going to have enough, uh, you know, sales from the building to actually cover uh, the debt. And so that's something that you can do to sort of mitigate that issue. So commercial is a lot more flexible um, in terms of what can be done because it's effectively unregulated compared to residential. Yeah, and it's not covered by... NCCP, that's yeah. correct. But NCCP is the is the regulation. Now, inside versus outside SMSF. So outside SMSF, I guess, is, is kind of what we've uh, just covered there, all regulated, everything like that. Uh, inside SMSF, um, you know, you've got to meet sort of all the superannuation rules. Uh, and if it's going to be purchased, you know, um, with the LRBA, then you need to, you know, meet the requirements around that. So SMSF loans, you know, typically you need a much larger deposit. Uh, and effectively, the serviceability will be looked at based on your typically your SG contributions, plus in some cases, additional contributions, uh, and also the rent from the property, uh, and the assessment rate tends to be higher as well. So the qualification for uh, an SMSF property tends to be harsher. Uh, there are also generally stricter requirements around what can be bought within SMSF. Um, so some SMSF lending, uh, you know, they may not like, uh, say, off-the-plan properties as much, or they might do it as like a low LVR. Uh, construction is likely to be an issue as well due to changing the nature, you know, of the actual property. So uh, there are a number of things that have to be sort of considered in these areas. It's a lot more regulated in terms of what can come in as in in, a, in the form of a contribution, and that's why the banks are more nervous about it and want to see a lot more money on the table. That's my general understanding of it. I guess I have to be careful not to uh, go too far on this topic because it is more the domain um, of someone who operates currently as a financial advisor, but certainly it is a much more regulated uh, area and the banks do have to be careful as to how they finance it. And so the current requirements are that, uh, yeah, the much larger de uh, deposit requirement is the main difference there uh, in order for, um, you know, you to qualify to buy within an SMSF uh, with leverage, basically. Hmm. And what uh, mortgage products do you usually um, deal with? Is it Do you do more residential or do you do more commercial? Definitely much more residential, but we are branching out more and more into commercial. Uh, we do do quite a bit of commercial and I've done some kind of uh, some pretty cool uh, transactions when it comes to commercial. Um, I've done one that was three commercial uh, buildings not far out of Sydney City. Uh, contract was signed about two years uh, prior to the settlement. And we were able to do 100% financing based on the value of the property actually going up over that time. And so the bank was willing to say that the current value, um, you know, far exceeded what the agreed, uh, well, basically like, yeah, the, the value of it had gone up so much 
that you know they didn't even have to put any deposit in. in. Yeah. There was already enough security. So things like this that you can do in commercial, um, and we are increasingly doing development loans as well. So we're getting quite a lot of people come to us wanting to do uh, developments. You know, generally development loan is uh, upwards of four units. Um, and this is becoming, uh, I guess, more and more the domain of brokers as opposed to the banks because the banks tend to be turning away developers who don't or would be developers, uh, people that don't have experience of having done a, a decent sized project before. At the moment, the banks rarely want to look at you. So a lot of that now we're having to put through specialist development lenders, uh, but we are seeing more and more of that coming through as we are seeing that uh, councils are becoming more open to uh, increased density, I guess, with higher house prices and, and an increasing population. So we are seeing a lot of, um, you know, people come out of the woodwork wanting to be developers and, and starting to do small projects. And uh, so increasingly, we're doing a lot of those transactions. Mm. Are the differences between the banks more more just around whether they lend or they don't lend? Or are there also differences in the products they offer? And the only products I'm aware of is, is variable rate or fixed rate. Mm -hmm. Is there a wider product range than I'm aware of? Products, uh, the banks don't differ, I guess, that much. I mean, as you've mentioned, you know, we've got variable, we've got fixed. You know, you do have some... Um, Combination you know, of both. Exactly. And, you know, you have some minimal sort of changes between the way banks offer their products Uh, but when it comes to lending policy is where we really see uh, the big difference. And so, you know, some banks will have uh, postcode restrictions in terms of they don't want to lend to sort of specific areas. Um, some banks won't like high rise developments. Some uh, banks will, you know, if they if the complex has a lift, they will only include a smaller percentage of rent. Um, in some places, probation's an issue. Uh, casual employment can be an issue. Uh, you know, overseas income is an issue. There's just there's like endless credit issues. You know, whether you've got defaults. Uh, you know, are you buying with other people? Are you trying to exclude the treatment of other debt? Uh, there's there's just like 50 or 60 different little specifics that can vary in someone's circumstances. But if you don't choose the right lender, someone's borrowing capacity could be potentially crippled. And so finding the right lender for what they're looking to do um, is, is the most, I guess, important part uh, for many people in, in today's market. Welcome back. I found Jonathan through his SMSF podcast, which I really enjoyed listening to. But he actually does two podcast series. His main one is the Australian Property Podcast, where he discusses property from any angle you can imagine. He's up to episode 317. Amazing. Here we are at episode 23, so he's a bit ahead of us. Change of topic. In December last year, the government appointed former High Court Judge Kenneth Hain to lead the Royal Commission into Banking and Financial Services. And one of the first things Mr. Hain did was to broaden the terms of reference to include mortgage brokering. So the Royal Commission will now also include the mortgage brokering industry. In the next episode, episode 24, Andrew Ficot and Anka Dao of Revenue New South Wales will talk about paratax exemptions and rebates for New South Wales. 
Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.